Welcome to Break Free, Mindful Living for a Busy Lifestyle. Hey y'all, so today's episode is something that Cody and I have been super excited about bringing to y'all. It's actually going to be a conversation between Cody and I with Ryan Winters, who is a mental health counselor. And it's a conversation that we had with him where we actually broke down all of the science and the body reactions of what's happening whenever you are feeling anxious. And we also talked about just some really practical ways to manage your anxiety and just all around such a great conversation. And we're so excited to bring this to you today. And it was such a good conversation. We actually are going to break it into two different episodes so that you can really just have time to resonate with it and think about it. And so on the first part, it's going to be more on the like science side and what actually happens in your body when you're feeling anxious. And then in part two next week, be sure to tune in to hear some practical ways of how you can help manage your anxiety just from a mindfulness kind of perspective. So without further ado, I'll introduce you to Ryan Winters. Well, I appreciate the introduction. And uh, yeah, my name is Ryan Winters. I uh, work as a counselor. I'm a licensed professional counselor. And uh, I have a private practice, Connected Counseling, that I work out. And I've been a licensed counselor for about six, seven years now. And I've worked inpatient uh, at an inpatient facility. I've worked in intensive outpatient with substance abuse issues. I've worked in home and have gone to folks' homes and helped with issues with both parenting and, and uh, like uh, working with schools and the court systems to try to help uh, younger uh, clients with whatever they were having issues with. And then ultimately, I've also worked in the university uh, as an advisor and counselor, and uh, I currently help folks with trauma issues, uh, LGBT plus issues, uh, anxiety and depression, and uh, the demographics that I work with, usually adolescents up to all the way to the late 60s and 70s. So, so you have a, a wide range of different experiences and different stories that you can pull from to help you make the professional and personal choices, really, because I'm sure being in this field affects your life and the way that you see things as well. Yeah. And one of my supervisors said, oh, you're painting your canvas thick. And I never knew what that meant, but I was like, huh, what does that, that mean? And finally I came to the realization she was trying to express that I was expressing myself. I was trying a lot of different ways of helping others before I came to an understanding of who I was sort of as a, as a person who helps those with therapy, because they consider therapy uh, and counseling as both an art and a science. Um, there's an attitude of like, you have to understand others intuitively in order to be a helper because otherwise you're just a robot repeating the psychological terms and concepts and things. So it's important to have that empathy and that non-judgmental sort of attitude to try to make it a, a, a real relationship. And the stronger the relationship, um, the better the outcome. In fact, they find that the relationship is the key to the, the most 
uh, appreciable outcome. It's actually everything else, the coping mechanisms, all that's important, but actually it's the relationship that is the key to the best uh, outcome for the client. That's so fascinating. And so that kind of ties into what we're going to talk about today with anxiety specifically. I'm very interested in hearing some of the scientific side of the way that we function. You know, me and Fallon have been talking about mindfulness and, you know, pretty much in, for lack of better terms, the spirituality of us. And it'll be very interesting to hear both sides of this perspective. But I'm very glad to be here. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to kind of talk and, and just speak about different things related to topics that I really enjoy talking about and uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about. So I appreciate the invite. Absolutely. So what we're going to talk about today, what we have planned? Well, uh, one of the things that I really love about my job is that I get to learn about newer things as they come out because I'm always having to keep up with my licensure for counseling mm -hmm. and that requires repeated continuing education. So I have to keep looking into things that I work on and work with. Right now, one of my big things that I work with is uh, trauma um, and I use different techniques to do that, but I have to know the theories and the neuroscience behind why these things work because what that can do sometimes is I, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where someone's telling you something and you're just kind of like uh-huh uh-huh yes. you're not really sure like why would this work or how will this even like what does this all mean like sometimes especially like if you if you talk to people about like hypnosis you know, people get this kind of like, and like, I'm not a hypnotist, <laughs> but it does do something biophysically. And uh, the thing about what I look at is with trauma is the biophysical kind of nature of what's going on in the brain and how's it affecting the body and that, uh, that connection between the two. And uh, I was actually just telling Fallon about the body keeps the score, which is a very popular kind of revolutionary book by Vessel Vessel Vanderkoop. I read that last year. You did. Mm -hmm. You got mm -hmm. it. It's a it's like a a classic, and the information in it is just it's unbelievable. But it's really revolutionary in the sense that the the vagus nerve is getting a little more attention now, and the kind of the the vagal complex that's responsible for us being able to just live our lives socially and talk to one another. And like, if you smile, I might smile back, mm -hmm. you know, those kind of basic things we kind of take them for granted. And then if there's ever trauma or anxiety in our lives, those things become a little harder and ironically they become harder, but that's what your brain's supposed to do. Like it's, it's doing what it's built to do, which is trying to save you and help you. But ultimately it blocks off sometimes the ability to feel okay in your social interactions with others and social interactions in turn can be the thing that help you calm down. So it's like this weird cycle where like now I've lost my ability to have a social interaction because I'm so, you know, I like to say my, up, my amygdala is upregulated. <laughs> um, can you break down what that means? Cause I, <laughs> I know. That's the nerdiest thing I've said all day. Um, <laughs> it's okay. No, You'll fit right in. <laughs> absolutely. Correct. 
Yeah. Yeah. The amygdala is the um, fight or flight center of the brain. It's two little almond shaped uh, organs that are in the middle of the brain that are responsible for deciding whether or not the brain's uh, sympathetic nervous system is activated. The sympathetic nervous system does all that wonderful stuff, like making sure that your heart pumps even faster because your adrenaline, your adrenal gland right above your kidneys releases a whole bunch of adrenaline. And then your heart goes, oh, I better pump fast, you know, and you start to kind of have your eyes dilate and you, and you, and your breathing gets even heavier. So you get more oxygen to your heart. And so it can pump through your body. So your muscles get more oxygen, you know, and then you can ultimately run away or um, fight if you, if you have to fight. And uh, the amygdala is upregulation. That just means that it's being activated by the thalamus, which pulls in um, the information. And then that's passed along to the, I believe it's the hypothalamus, which then pushes it along to the amygdala. But big, big story short, uh, the amygdala is basically responsible for that feeling of uncomfortableness that anxiety tends to provide us. It is the main organ, but it's a part of the the reptilian brain, right? Have you heard of this term before? Yes. Yeah, I have, but I don't know if some of our listeners may not have. So, so the idea with evolution and the brain for human beings is that uh, you know we originally came from reptiles and we slowly moved from that up. And each time we moved into a different uh, system of how the brain needed to work, we added on additional brain parts. So the original brain at the very center of our space of the amygdala area is um, that part is, is specifically the, the fear center because we had more threats and we had a higher likelihood of needing to be uh, aware as reptilians but we didn't have a social part of the brain is, is the theory. And that came later. That was the next part that was added on, which is the cortex. So like you have the central part or the hind brain, which started out and then eventually the cortex grew out of that, which is the part of the brain that's in the front and that deals with social interactions. So actually, if you look at an embryo, the way that an embryo's brain is formed is it starts off with the hindbrain and follows that evolutionary kind of movement forward as it grows in uh, the womb. And so we can actually see in real time that the way that our genetics is keeping that memory alive is still going on with the evolution of the cell to the, to the, of the embryo to the further along uh, parts. It's just kind of cool to see. That is so cool. Yeah. It's honestly fascinating. Yeah. It, it's unbelievable that the brain has gotten to where it is because now we have mirror neurons, which is also fascinating. I've never heard that term before. Mirror neurons? Uh, yeah. In the medial prefrontal cortex, which is right above the eyes, like in the, in the um, forehead area of the cortex, there's these neurons that'll flash whenever someone that's like approximate to us. Like, so if they're like right here and we're right there and we're looking at each other and they smile, we have neurons in our brain that even if we don't smile, go off and we'll mimic their, hmm. their smiling neurons. And they've studied it over a period of years and have found that it's true for almost every type of social interaction that the mirror neurons 
will go off if you've already experienced something before. And that's actually how we learn. That's why modeling works with little kids because those neurons will pick up eventually what the other person's doing with their mouth or with their eyes or the different parts of the muscles in the face and the neurons that are up here that recognize that social interaction, they begin to fire off too. And eventually the mimicry is what happens between the neurons. Wow. That is crazy. And it makes so much sense because a lot of times, at least for me, I'll catch myself when someone smiles at me, I may not even want to smile at them, but it just kind of happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that makes so much yeah. sense. It's those neurons telling you, hey, you better because that's the social thing you've, your brain's been programmed to do. So it's the right thing to do. And it's actually really hard to do the opposite because neuronal pathways are telling you, you better smile. That's the right thing to do. It's um, like a survival kind of taking, instinct or something. Yeah. It's like, or like how like you fit taking, in. Uh, I, I almost think of like Freudian stuff where we mm -hmm. think of like the sort of subconscious and the ego and all that kind of those ideas, like the super ego, Mm -hmm. I always think of mirror, mirror neurons as kind of like the unspoken of superego that Freud originally came up with. He was like, oh, yeah, we, we have societal cues that tell us this is right or wrong. And we actually have a place in the brain right, right above our eyes that's like, oh, yeah, you better listen. You know, Is that something that is related to can, or could be kind of connected to like, you know, we, we were told when we were kind of brought up, I was brought up, you are who you hang around with type yeah, of thing, yeah. you know, because like, even though I'm not meant to like mimic what I'm, my people around me are, it's just kind of like something that just happens. Is that something that just, is, is that the same kind of psychology or am I kind of going off on a tangent with that? No, I, I think that's a good point. I mean, it, you are basically always in a state of trying to understand if you're fitting in, you know, that's, that's the human social need is to fit in that belongingness is like huge so the mirror neurons are automatic belongingness kind of red flags that tell you like you're doing it right and sometimes i think um there's another part of the brain called the cingulate which is the part right outside the hindbrain it's the space that connects the cortex which is the social side and the hindbrain which is the fear side or flight side and the two together kind of uh, that cingulate is where they meet and the cingulate is the executive function between the social and the like i'm afraid and it kind of makes the executive decisions so with people that have social anxiety is mm -hmm. there some type of block there or now that's a complicated question i'm just speaking from experience because for instance you were using the smiling back as an example yeah. now you know depending on the situation like me being a musician you know like whenever i'm putting on a performance or like whenever i have to show up for people i can do that it's like a block but like if i'm just normally in just normal life and like somebody smiles at me sometimes depending on what happens like there's like a block with me like i don't know how to function sometimes like do i smile back because it's just to me it's so, so difficult to be natural because it causes like an anxiety now because it's like okay well they smiled or they're acting this way and it's just like oh well, what do i do you know and I, I know i should smile back but then it's like that overthinking thing and it's then it makes me kind of socially awkward in a sense yeah it's that loop the feedback loop mm -hmm. of like oh well now i'm 
aware of me being aware of me being aware. <laughs> you just can't, yes. You just can't stop being aware of that you're not doing it right. And that's the funny thing is the mirror neurons say that, I mean, there is no right way. It's just following the other person, you know. And, uh, but I think, you know, that the complex, the complexity, excuse me, that I'm talking about is just the fact that there's a lot of different things going on when you have social anxiety that also may become from like the past. Like if you had a traumatic experience as a child, you know, um, there may be some memories that get brought up only, only for like a split second. And like, you may not even be aware that that's why you're having like this anxiety that's popping up. So it's like a number of different parts of the brain get activated during a social anxiety situation that are usually pretty far back in your past sometimes that are being triggered without your awareness. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And that kind of leads into the question that I was going to ask is you'd mentioned earlier how social interactions can actually help with anxiety, but it kind of seems counterintuitive with someone who has social anxiety issues. How do you navigate that? Oh, that's another big question. (laughs) Y'all ask good questions. Uh, So I think a part of it is actually uh, the amygdala is the problem. Uh, The amygdala, when it gets upregulated by whatever it may be, whether it's memories or just a continuous sense of uneasiness um, that's caused from that upregulation, you have to downregulate the amygdala. You have to get it to calm down so that you can think. So what happens is whenever the amygdala is going off, it goes off like a few milliseconds. The signal from outside to inside, it goes off faster than your cortex, which runs your social stuff, right? So because the amygdala is catching the signal faster, your cortex can't catch up and it'll shut your cortex down faster. So you have to calm your body down to calm your amygdala down and then your prefrontal cortex, which runs the social, can can actually function. That's absolutely mind-blowing. Having that physical change is the, the way to get around that. I'm guilty of this because I'll say, like, calm down, calm down, calm down. Or, like, you're feeling anxious or you're feeling a certain thing, like, you know, like that fight or flight. It's just, like, nothing I could do to think will make it go away. And more often than not... The only thing that helps something like distracting me physically going do something else. And I mean, I've shut down before yeah. and like not been able to function because of that anxiety. Yep. And another side of it is, you know, you have to find the coping skills that do work for you. But there are some that are that are like known to work because biophysically they are the ones that, you know, deactivate the amygdala and say, calm, you know, calm down amygdala. And they use the vagus nerve. That's that. I was talking about the vagus nerve that runs, that basically is the brainstem and it runs directly into the amygdala uh, and that, and the hindbrain. And so like breathing exercises, mm-hmm. whenever you do breathing exercises, all the ganglia of the vagus nerve are in your stomach region. And so when you breathe in, what you're actually activating is that vagus nerve and you're pushing on it and calming the amygdala down by pushing on the vagus nerve. Really? That is fascinating. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. That's, that's why that works. You know, that's what gets you to, that's the body part. Now, I mean, you can do things like yoga too, or you can do mindfulness practices of, of um, maybe Qigong or, or like, what is it? Um, tai Chi. Mm-hmm. And those also work, but a lot of that's breathing based. Yes. When we had Sean on, you know, he owns the martial arts studio 
they teach and your actions, that's how you can kind of gain your energy through motion. All of that kind of really changes your breathing. So it all kind of makes sense how all that, how the physical breathing exercises will. I'm just taken back that it's in your gut. Yeah, it's there and it's ready for you to, to use it as an option to help you calm down. Always. It's just, I think with the way society is, we're only now coming to the mind body connection. It's only taken what? couple thousand years no right. yeah. <laughs> um, it's all good <laughs> we'll get there yeah. but the thing is i mean it's been around for thousands of years too just not recognized in the scientific it's been recognized as a spiritual sort of attitude so we in the eastern mindset there's always been these ways of calming down we've just never understood why it worked till now that makes so much sense because for me, from a spiritual aspect, I've always had these types of feelings of it works, you know, but I never knew that there was a scientific side of it that backs up why it works. Like just bringing that together is so empowering. Yeah, it's, it's a powerful idea, I think, in general, that you actually have more control of your mind through the actions of your body and that you can prove why. I think that's empowering. Yeah, very much so. Because I think it, up until now, a lot of people have dismissed a lot of Eastern ways of thinking and spiritual ways of thinking just because there was no science backing it up. So the yes. fact that science is finally catching up to that is so amazing to me because this is stuff that I have been exposed to my whole life that I just, it never, like, it was always this separate side of me because, I mean, coming from an engineering background, which is super scientific. And also having this spiritual side, it was always two separate sides of myself. And I never was able to merge those two. And so recently with all the research that's coming out about mindfulness and breath work and all this stuff, just like it's just finally coming together and it's just amazing. Yeah, it's fun to see kind of the changes in the, in the I guess, the landscape of what's okay and what's not okay. I always feel like there's these new revolutionary moments that happen and then there's a dampening down on them. So for example, mm -hmm. with psychedelic research, that was a, there's a huge dampening down on psychedelic research in the sixties uh, because of uh, the Nixon era and the scheduling system, which was very important to keep dangerous drugs off the streets, but it unfortunately stifled an entire generation from being able to study how to uh, help with un untreated de like depression that will not respond to treatment. Currently they're using ketamine yes. as a way to help with, with that or like different things like, you know, just experiencing psilocybin as a, as an option in like Colorado and Oregon right now, you know, these are like very cutting edge sort of new ways of seeing how the brain can restructure itself and recognizing that that's important. I think with anxiety, what we're looking at now, though, is why does the brain do what it does? And if we know, then we can figure out how to help that person with anxiety actually finally diminish the amount of activity of the brain. But not every, not every person's going to know all the steps and all the things to get you there. So you got to pull from a little bit of everything. That spiritual side is really useful because it makes it, it brings in that existentialism, right? It brings in that meaningfulness as well as the, the biophysical. So I think, I think it's always that healthy dose of a little bit of everything. But the more we 
go further into finding out why the mind and the body react the way they do, I think the better off we'll be as a society as well. Because I think, uh, especially like I, I was talking about with, uh, you know, COVID-19 and this whole just continuous pandemic mindset. I mean, people are walking around with significant stress. I know I am. And not just from that, a number of things, but having the ability to recognize I can take certain breathing exercises and I'm already feeling a hundred times better just by doing that for five minutes, three times out of a day. I mean, that's powerful. You know, and people that have extreme anxiety and uh, I'll be upfront with, with y'all and, and our audience, that's something that I struggled with and still struggle with to this day that to where it's like so powerful to where like I'll shut down. And one of the hardest things, whenever you, trying to become aware of it and, and like because like I, I remember there was this thought that i had maybe last year my anxiety and depression was so bad i felt like there was nothing to help me or like every time that i wanted to get started to do something my intuition was telling me like i need to look into the spiritual side of things i need to look at you know that side of things but the hardest thing for me is because i was trapped in that that anxiety and i was trapped in my mind that it it was like almost impossible for me to even get started. So like I'd hear things about, you know, you need to try coping skills. You need to try all of this. You need to try all of that. And like, it was almost like I was having anxiety about trying to treat my anxiety. And it's like, I didn't know where to start. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. It's, it's almost an overbearing pressure to try to find the answer. And then that becomes an anxiety in and of itself. Right. Uh, another thing that's really fascinating that I, f I found today and I had completely forgotten about it, but it's so cool is something called heart rate variability. That's a way to measure actually the level of autonomic nervous system difficulty. So, oh, this is a rabbit hole. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's a guy, uh, back in the, I want to say the 1920s or thirties. I can't remember exactly, but Walter Cannon he was the first to discover the, f the fight or flight response and how it affects the body and like how that system works. It's called the HPA axis. If, have you heard of this before? Is this no, new? I haven't. no, I haven't. Okay. So the hypothalamus, the pituitary and the adrenal gland have a system that where they communicate with each other. And whenever the hypothalamus is activated, uh, through the amygdala, it sends it next to the pituitary gland, which pumps out all your hormones mm -hmm. and increases the level of response. And then finally, it goes down to your adrenal gland and pumps out the adrenaline. And that's what causes the anxiety feelings, is those three acting together. It's called the HPA axis. I love that name. It sounds like something from World War II. <laughs> it sounds really HPA. cool. And actually, I think we did actually talk about something like that on our very first episode. I just didn't call it that. So I didn't recognize the name, but I definitely know what you're talking about now. So, so you know what? Okay. So yeah. my the thing that gets interesting is uh, is Hans. I always say his name weird. I think it's Selye. I think I'm saying it right. S-A-L-Y-E. Selye. And in the 1950s, he was doing experiments with like rats and trying to figure out like how, how does this system with stress work if it's over a long period of time? Like what happens? And he found that there was actually a significant difference between the system of an acute stress situation and a prolonged stress situation. And what he discovered was that something called catecholamines get released if it's a prolonged 
period of stress. And what those specifically cause is a release in um, cortisol. Um, the, the most popular one is ACTH, which is adreno. I'm going to slaughter this adrenocorticotropic hormone. Ugh. Easy yeah. to say. <laughs> AC, no, no problem there. ACTH is uh, what's released. And then that eventually produces cortisol. So some of the things that cortisol is responsible for and kind of part of the problem is that, uh, it usually regulates your glucose the amount of proteins that are being uh, processed, as well as your lipid metabolism. So dealing with your fats and making sure that energy is getting processed throughout your body. Um, it also suppresses the immune response. So when you're really anxious over long periods of time, your body releases ACTH and then the cortisol comes in and that actually decreases your immune system. So with all of the COVID-19 and pandemic it, and everybody being having this elevated stress level because of that, it's almost in a way hurting us because we're so stressed that our immune system is now suppressed and we can't actually fight off the virus and everything. Yeah, it's very ironic and <laughs> kind of, you know, it's and it's funny because like we want to blame our bodies, you know, and be like, oh, come on, like but it's doing what it's supposed to do. And that's the thing is like, um, that's why I keep saying we have control of our bodies. Like we can actually help it and we can choose how to help it. So that's, that's the cool thing is like, it's not a lost cause. You know what I mean? Like you still have the capacity to figure out how to like get those coping mechanisms to like decrease the anxiety. But the thing about, yeah, being in a moment, like a world crisis, because that's what we're in right now. Still, I think, yeah. um, it feels like that to a lot of people. And the reality is like the thoughts of it can tend to be just as triggering as the body response. I mean, the thoughts tend to be the thing causing the body response, right? So regulating those as well. Yeah. It's one of those things where your, your mind doesn't recognize what's real or not. Like it doesn't have that distinction. So it doesn't matter whether or not you're thinking about it or if you're actually experiencing it, your body has that same response. Exactly. That's exact. And it's strange to me that we live in a time where we have so many different um, things that we have to regulate ourselves over. I mean, the media that we see daily, whether it's social media or just like if you watch TV or even stream something. I mean, uh, I was watching something about like China today and the issues that China might pose. And as I, when I was done with it, I was like, man, I gotta do some breathing exercises. Right. Or like this is a lot. Yeah. And I was thinking about it. I was like, how many times do people do that, but they don't respond to it with something to help calm them down. So then you walk around with that anxiety you take with you from whatever media you've seen. And maybe you've seen three or four different things that have intense emotional responses that are caused from, you know, upregulating that amygdala and worrying about what that media just showed you. And, you know, you got to take, you got to bring it back down. Somebody who already has anxiety though, mm -hmm. or is like diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, they usually have to deal with kind of like continuously paying attention to like what they're absorbing because it's all triggerable kind of stuff. It's like, Oh, I don't know if I want to see this. They have to make that decision. And sometimes they can't like no one's telling them like, Hey, it's going to be that thing that pushes you over the edge and you're going to need to go take like a really long bath. <laughs> like, right. I also find that 
and this is just a, um, an observation from what I observe of the world that there's a way high number of people that have extreme anxiety, but normalize it, you know, to where it, you know, they're very anxious about things, but it's almost as if it's expected from you. Like everybody has this, how can I say it? This uh, baseline of just nervousness that's always there, you know, to where it's everybody's on edge a little bit, you know, and I find that that is more normalized now than I've ever experienced in my life because they're living with that baseline of anxiety that the smallest little insignificant thing that might be insignificant will set that anxiety off. And it's just all of a sudden you snap people that thought they were okay, snap, but then what they might not realize is that they're already at that high level of stress and anxiety, but they just think that's normal. Mm, That's a, that's an interesting point that the um, it's like a, your actual homeostasis is anxiety. Like that's where my balance is, is anxiety. And uh, yeah, that's interesting to try to, what happens when you come out of that, you know, like, is it like a, did you even realize that you were there? That's the thing. I, I think you don't. And like you said, that's, that's the problem is like, how do you figure out if you're there? You know, like, what do you pay attention to? Are there red flags? Is it your body? Like, is it muscle tension? Like, what is it that you pay attention to? And I actually don't know the best way to do that because everyone's different. So some people it's like, oh, now I have TMJ. Maybe I should recognize something's going on because I keep clenching my teeth and it's messing, which I I actually do have TMJ (laughs) probably for my last job. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) Yeah, you know, you you start to pay attention. What is my body doing? How's it responding to the environment? And what am I not, what am I missing? Right, and this is part of my personal journey. Before I kind of recognized the level of anxiety that I had is I was so attuned to just being highly anxious all the time to where whenever I first started to find out ways like whenever I sought therapy and you know which I still go to therapy this day you know it's not anything to be ashamed of you know yeah but, I do too by the way and I'm a counselor <laughs> so like y'all just yeah and my and <laughs> everyone my and, does. and my therapist goes to one as well so yeah yeah but what I found is because I was at that high level of anxiety and I'm talking about like a lifetime of it that just kind of been building up but, and that became my baseline to where I would always kind of in jokingly, but it, it's true is like people would say, you know, like you're so nervous, you know, you're so tightly wound. And that's what that is, is that was just my baseline. It was who I was. It was, I identified with it and to where whenever I started working on my anxiety to where like I would experience something actually relaxing, it felt like nothing was going on, which side effect of that put me in a depression because I didn't know what was happening. Whenever I actually leveled off to where I say leveled off, but when my, when my baseline changed to where I wasn't as stressed anymore, I was like, this is not normal. And it stuck me into a a depression for months before I realized what was happening. Mm. And just to recap the, the whole idea of the anxiety leading to depression. I mean, that, sounds like a pretty typical actualization of your of your you know your threat response because like um in trauma there's a similar sort of thing where when i work with clients i have to help them find a space where they're comfortable because actually there's like a boiling point where like yeah things are you know your your amygdala is over regulated 
I mean, not overregulated, over, uh, overactive. <laughs> thank you. Overstimulated. <laughs> Overstimulated. Thank you. That's the word. Yeah. <laughs> Both much better than what I just said. So, <laughs> so, um, then there's a freezing point and the freezing point is the other problem, which is you're too relaxed with, with those who have trauma. They actually, they find that relaxation becomes triggering. It becomes a negative mm. space because they have to learn, their amygdala has to learn that it's actually safe there as well because they were taught maybe when they froze in that moment of a traumatic experience that they were not okay, even when they were like calm because their body released so much cortisol to try to calm them down. It actually caused a problem where the brain can't recognize cortisol as a good thing or the calming effect as a good thing. It's so interesting how it has to be that balance, right? It goes back to that. It can't be too much or too little and how just that change, like the, the brain really recognizes it being like too much of a good thing, you know, or too much yeah. of a bad thing. It's so interesting. Yeah. Oof, wasn't that just so good? I know I so enjoyed that and I am so looking forward to you guys hearing what we have for the rest of the episode on next week where we talk more about anxiety and depression and just some practical ways that you can manage your anxiety through mindfulness. So I really hope you enjoy today's conversation and you tune into next week's episode and I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye.